Hello, listener. Overby here. Just swooping in to say that we recorded this episode so long ago that we did not know about Ethan Warren's terrific podcast, Pod Thomas Anderson, a podcast that delves into each of the films of director Paul Thomas Anderson, and because Ethan is wonderful and kind, we'll be featuring both Hannah Blechman and myself in upcoming weeks. So check out the podcast Pod Thomas Anderson on the One Heat Minute feed. And hey, have a wonderful authorized. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we faithfully discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a bizarre black hole inside which a reader's concept of time is completely useless. Startlingly brief, considering how lush and expansive their source film is, novelizations still take the liberty of inventing entire new sections of story, as well as head-hopping to assemble a rich collage of characters' inner anxieties. These books also put an immense amount of emphasis on the climax of a film, expanding it into a full third of the page count. Inventive and unconstrained by expectation, novelizations take what they can from their primary object, growing a new flower from the soil fed by nutrients of their feature film. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Phantom of the Paradise is a 1974 rock musical comedy horror whole situation film directed and written by Brian De Palma. It follows Winslow Leach, an aspiring songwriter who takes his ambitions straight to the top, the kingmaker of record producers, the infamous Swan. When Swan decides to embrace Leech's music but forgo Leech himself, because Leech is weird, I'm not going to blame him necessarily, <laughs> the unknown genius is viciously spurned, imprisoned, and maimed in rapid succession. In order to debut the sprawling rock opera that holds both men's hopes and dreams, Winslow and Swan must put aside their myriad vendettas, but like they don't really try to do that at all. But when the theater lights come up, will their feud resume or resolve? This is a funny way to describe this, Andrew. Also, depending on whether you're watching the movie or reading the book, the character Phoenix is either a really terrific person or a really awful person. The novelization of Phantom of the Paradise was written by Bjarn Rostang, based on the screenplay by Brian De Palma. Rostang claims to have written the book in a single 62-hour sitting. Sounds like too much time. Wow! It was published (laughs) by Starbucks in 1974. Okay, Hannah, you say wow. Uh, Ethan, mm-hmm. you say wow, or or that you know, y- y- I think you're you're joking that it's so short, right? Oh no, I'm saying it seems like he wrote it in about twelve hours. Would be my guess. Well, with right. like, on coke with cocaine attached to his face like a horse's feed bag. <laughs> but I don't know if I'm supposed to be talking. See, yet. No, you're good. You're <laughs> good. Okay, you'll still get introduced, but who who cares? So, 
62 hours to me screams like he sat down and he was like, I'm going to bang this thing out in a night, 12 hours. Because, you know, people write things in a night. And to me, that sounds like they sat down and started writing, they finished and they went, wow, that only took a night. 62. Him saying 62 really sounds like he was going, I'm going to write this in 12 hours. Uh, 24. I'll write it in two days. And then he just stops the clock when he's done. And he's like, would you believe I wrote this in 62 hours? A unit we all use. (laughs) How much of it was he sleeping, though? Like 48? (laughs) Our guest today, a senior editor at Brightwall Dark Room, as well as the host of the, one of the hosts of the podcast, What a Year, and the author of the new book out this week, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, Ethan Warren. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on this show. Of course. Thanks for bringing this book to us. Thank you for giving me an excuse to read it. It's been on my shelf for several years, and I've never, for some reason, been able to justify reading this book (laughs) when there are other books in the world. It it should be said, the second time that this has happened this season... Uh, a guest is like, oh, I really want to cover a book that's quite rare or or rare enough. And you scanned the whole book for us. Very kind. I did on my telephone uh, and, and on every single page, I then had to crop it to get my fingers out of the shot. Oh, that's my, that's my <laughs> I, vanity I appreciate speaking. the work yeah. very much. Ethan, I was trying to remember because you and I have met once it must have been eight years ago right so you say um apparently I leave a fantastic (laughs) impression and I'm sorry to say apparently you don't (laughs) eight years is a long time yeah so it's sometime in 2014 uh because I am uh good friends from from college with Charlie McKittrick some at some time in 2014 I was at his parents house and you being wed into that family, I think in the future, right? You wouldn't have been married at that time. Uh, yeah, we, were, we would have been either engaged or not yet engaged in 2014. Not me and not me and Charlie, but his sister. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like you were you were introduced to me as a as a fiance. But but I was thinking about this today. I was like, I mean, and you can't answer the question because you don't remember that I exist, which is fine. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's yeah. okay. I was just thinking like. Why were we at these people's parents' house at the same time? Did I visit my college friend like on Thanksgiving? What was happening? Well, that that family does tend to have, and this is going to be great for your listeners, just content. This is going to send your Patreon through the roof. My in-laws do <laughs> often have a uh, a holiday party, and so perhaps you you swung an invite to that. Mm, I think mm. I would remember more oh, party-like you? things. Well, you you may have just sort of stopped by because uh, I do also, uh, in 2014, we didn't live nearby. We now live around the corner from my in-laws, um, and I have seen Charlie extremely recently and all the time. Um, but at that time, it would have just been a coincidence, I guess. We we tried to have him on the podcast once. I loved Charlie so much, and his internet was so damn bad that we just had to kick him off. <laughs> that just sounds about right, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, that was like a year ago now. Uh, Ethan. Yes. When, so first of all, thank you for, uh, I was going to say thank you for coming onto a podcast of a guy you had one extremely meaningful conversation with eight yep, years ago. Yep. But now I'm revising it to coming onto a stranger's podcast. Well, not a stranger, just in that liminal zone between stranger and incredibly memorable person. 
where so many people live. When we first set up this episode, it was going to be four hosts, like everyone but John Goodman, plus you and Johnny Pomato and Andrew Marco are like obsessed with this movie. Now, they unfortunately had to drop off the episode, which uh, I, this is going to be an amazing discussion, but you should know, I think you're the only person here who had seen the movie prior to like three days ago. Fantastic. And I have seen it many times. So this is going to be a, a conversation of contrasts. So, Ethan, as the person who loves this movie, what's your relationship with it? When did you see it for the first time? Uh, Phantom of the Paradise. What's, what is it to you? I mean, you know, it's it's not I mean, it's not a movie I could fall in love with the first time, certainly with my sensibility. It's it's so assaultive. Um in every possible way. Like I tweeted that one shot of Winslow in the courtroom, which like is not a shot you need in the movie. And it is the most (laughs) crazy, like grand guignol German expressionist shot with like an American flag behind it, like Patton or blowout. Cause everything with Brian De Palma is interconnected. And this movie has every single Brian De Palma movie in it, but we can talk about that later if you care to. Um, and then, you know what I, I think it may have been is uh, the dissolve, the the long departed and best site on the internet. Um, sorry to my own site that I work for. No offense, guys, but I think you'd probably agree the dissolve <laughs> was incredible. You could say this about a dead website. It's yeah. Fine. yeah. Oh. Look, sometimes I just go back to the dissolve and read old stuff. Me too. So good. Yeah, like some of the Phantom of the Paradise stuff. It was one of their movies of the week, and they talked about that fabulous bizarre phenomenon with this movie which is that it's huge in winnipeg um are you aware of this no only winnipeg not like canada at large no andrew are you aware of this no i have no idea no oh my goodness well phantom of the paradise is a cult classic like rocky horror you know leaving rocky horror in the dust uh cult classic greatest of all time in winnipeg and that's all because Winnipeg is is this very isolated city and phenomena can just like happen there in a bubble. And so everywhere else on earth, except like France, I think this movie was kind of DOA and in Winnipeg, it was just embraced and it played like gone with the wind for years. And they didn't really realize it had been a flop everywhere else. And so to this day, it's like, the official movie of Winnipeg. They have Phantom of the Paradise uh, conferences, uh, conventions up there. Um, there's a documentary out there about about the phenomenon of Phantom of the Paradise in Winnipeg. It's fascinating. Wow. And that is probably part of like what got me back into it. Is it's like I got to go back to this thing. There's a cult there. Like, what is it that people see in this? And I just got fascinated by it, and it it became something that. I've, I I just think there's like a book in this movie, another book than this one. <laughs> I think you could do like a BFI film classics style, little slim book about this movie because there is so much that is in it. Um, this movie, like it's it's got so much about the 70s uh, and like the, that moment in culture. It is this hinge point into Palma's career where it's kind of an explosion of him processing stuff uh about his own like artistic journey um and it's using the uh sort of fin de cecile um 
literary influences like Phantom of the Opera and Picture of Dorian Gray, Portrait of Dorian Gray, either are. Um, it's using those in a way that I think really intersects in a fascinating way with what was going on with the 70s, like the culture that these stories grew out of is the same as the culture this movie grew out of. There's a book here, maybe someday, or somebody else steal this idea and run with it. Um, I've got other stuff going on. You can have it. You don't have enough books on your plate. Yeah, probably. right. Um, <laughs> I just think it's a fascinating movie, and the more I've dug into it, and it's just, how how can you ever get bored of watching this movie? Like, I could watch this movie every week and have a great time from the second that the Juicy Fruits are dancing on that stage in the beginning, and you're just like, what is happening to my life? Every single time I watch this movie, I am struck with the thought, what is happening to my life? And that's my, my spiel. I uh, have watched this movie now twice in about three days. Um Good which is only me agreeing with you, really. It just goes down so easily and really oozes charisma in the sense that when I was watching it the second time, I was like, I know this guy who isn't Bill Paxton, but could be, isn't the star of the movie, the the like initial lead of the Juicy Fruits. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. But when he shows up, in minute two of the movie, the second time I'm watching, I'm like, who's this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what are we going to do with this guy? Like, fully knowing it goes nowhere. It's just like everyone on screen is bringing such a sort of a lived-in... I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by everyone. I don't feel like certain characters are, like, just there to support others, which is often the case. Now, the world of this movie, really, it, it exists, in, like, way beyond the scope of the movie, it, it feels like, while at the same time being, like, a little snow globe of a thing, it's it's so interesting. Had you, prior to this experience, read a movie novelization? Oh, a million of them. Yeah, I mean, not in a oh, while, okay. probably. Not common. Really? <laughs> oh, man. Well, who yeah. are these people who had a problem with their childhood? <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I loved it because, like, what's better than, like, you watch a movie and then you get to, like, watch it again in slow motion. Um, you get to, like, live in the movie for however long. Um, I think one of the real sort of standout ones for me still is Star Wars, which have you have you read the, that one, either of you? The initial, the first Star Wars? Yeah, yeah, like, from 1977, like, con concurrent with the movie. We have not. Andrew won't let us. Yeah, I won't let us. Here, here's here's the deal. It's I'll, I think I've said this on air before, but uh, so many podcasts that I love have their concept, right? And they're like, we watch sci-fi movies, and then they do like all the big sci-fi movies in the first two years, and the show's still good because the hosts are good, but you get to year five, and they're like, we're doing Planet, Planet Mud, everyone's favorite movie, and you're like, I don't know, and they're all Planet Mud from a certain point forward. I'm giving us like benchmarks. There's a show I won't name that I'm I'm thinking of. Yeah, I, I know. What so you mean. I've I've given us like little benchmarks. After a couple years, we're gonna do either Star Wars or Back to the Future, the whole trilogy. <sighs> either. Oh, <sighs> the Back to the Future novelization. And Hot damn. Okay. Yep. Looking forward to that episode. <laughs> so you've read that one. I'm just aware of it. Ryan North of Dinosaur Comics did like a uh, breakdown of it, like maybe a page by page breakdown of that book. And I've dipped into enough of it. I mean, 
I, I won't spoil your episode. The way that book begins is one of the most lunatic things that there has ever been on a page. And I can't wait for you to read it. That's my deal. Well, circle back in two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been, Hannah, this has been yeah. a part of our plan. I know. Essentially from the beginning, our second episode, we start with Gremlins, which is a very popular movie and, and written by the Back to the Future guy. Everybody talks about this as a great novelization. Our second episode was Battleship. We've always been looking at the fringes. A land of contrasts. Um, <laughs> well, Star Wars as a novelization is, I recall, being very interesting as a book. One of those, you know, it's not, it's not Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by any means, but it's um, more than just the screenplay in prose form. Um, and so that was really exciting to me. And that's kind of one of the only ones that I remember being like, artful and like meaningful to me as a book uh but as i say the other ones were just an excuse to like live in a movie that i had already enjoyed and just didn't want to stop thinking about what is the initial reaction when you finally crack open phantom of the paradise a property that uh, it sounds like it holds a big place in your life well um i i opened it for the first time a little while ago and then I was just immediately like well I can't just uh, look at this like this is this is too significant a uh vibe shift to use the parlance of a certain amount of time ago I'm I'm a dad I, I don't I can't even pretend to know where the slang is at this point um but I, I have no idea what you're talking about this is probably not something we need to get hung up on but oh vibe shift it's a it's a phrase the kids are using. oh a vibe imagine shift. you have a vibe yes. no i get that i know that i mean I, I, try, I, I literally just misheard we're good i try to just sort of like glance at this book and i'm like oh what is it open with the juicy fruits no carmine Al- albarno was a mafia lounge piano <laughs> player who had left teaneck new jersey because the sound of traffic gave him headaches and I was like, oh, well, this is going to be a whole fucking thing. So I, I uh, did have a very strong reaction to it the first time. And it, it was delight. I mean, I realized that we were dealing with something that was going to be quite wild. And I was not wrong. Hannah, did you have the reaction I did to that opening passage? I like because I had just watched the movie for the first time or and you had, you you read the book first, right? Oh, right. interesting. Oh, so I guess th- this question doesn't totally apply. I opened up the novelization and I was like, no one's name stuck with me. So obviously this is our hero. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Um, I did not. I mean, I didn't quite have that response, though, because I had no relationship to this beforehand. I was like, maybe that is our lead because I don't I don't know. But very quickly, it becomes clear that it is not um, mm-hmm. But for me, like every page was a surprise. I had no idea what was going to come next. It took so many weird turns, like especially character turns that just shocked and pleased me at at every piece. And the first one of like three chapters, which are not in the movie at all. I just loved. I was like, this is great. I can't wait to see like dingy 70s New York, the hotels, the artists. How exciting. Um, not in the film. Not in the film. <laughs> I mean, to the point that when I was reading it, I was like, does this movie even take place in New York or does it take place in like Metropolis, USA town? And it is mm-hmm. it is so it digs in so specifically to the New York of it in, in the book. Reading the book, I sorry, I kept trying to figure out like, OK, where is the paradise? They say it's in Soho. <laughs> is this the this theater that I've been to? Whatever. I used to live in New York um, and watching the movie. And I was like, is that city center? I don't know. But it, you're right. The movie is like amorphous. It exists in a dreamland. 
And the book is like, this is reality, don't forget, which is a crazy choice to make, in my opinion. Yes. To so firmly put it in the world. One of one of a couple crazy choices this book makes. <laughs> the, the first thing I have bookmarked here, because I agree with you, Hannah, that I really like the chapters that are added at the beginning. We're, we got another grease on our hands. There's like a whole book <laughs> before the book. The first thing I have bookmarked is the end of page 10 going into 11, which, which is all about Winslow's want. And I am at some point, I'm going to mess up Winslow, Paul Williams, and and William Finley. And I'm going to call somebody uh, Paul Winfield. I can, just, I can just feel it. So anyway, he needed success because success would mean long hours alone in a warm place with multi-channel tape machines and people who could do his music the way it had to be done. Had to be done. That was the point. Sex, friendship, love, belongings, art with a capital A, God and other diversions were not the point. The point was, if he stopped doing what he had to do, he would go bananas, which was what friends and relatives thought he was already, because they had nothing better to do with their time than stare at people. He needed to go to New York City, closer than Los Angeles, which would be just as good, and locate Alan D. Alan D. Swan, because this Mr. Swan had the resources to do anything that could be done in the music business. Can we put a pin that in this clear for one sec? I'm sorry. Can we also yeah. just, just? No, I'm basically done. Let's flip to the very first page. Swan. He had. <laughs> he had no other name. It's the first line in the movie, and all over this book, Alan D. Swan. Alan D. Swan. <laughs> it's just a choice. It is. It is very odd, uh, and and that uh, the book begins with the text that well, is read by Rod Serling. The Rod of the movie, Serling, right? isn't that the best? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just un unmistakable. You just know at the moment you hear it. the The reason I, I I wanted to bring that passage up is because it highlights something interesting about the Winslow character in that he has all these designs about what he wants to do with music, and he's like, "I'm a nobody, and I have to go talk to a somebody," and Something I didn't realize watching a 90-minute movie that moves at breakneck pace is at some point he pivots to, I'm a crazy control freak, and if something is going to be done with my music, it has to be done exactly to the letter of how I have it, which is very different from his early, like, it would be nice to have success feelings. The the Bjarne version of Winslow. You think he's he's just cooked. He's just crazy from the jump in the movie well not crazy but own his ownership over his work is immediately the most important thing to him the first the yeah the first thing we see him do is throw philbin against a wall and scream like nobody's gonna do my music except me and in the book we have like an extra 40 pages where he's like i think i could do all sorts of things with this <laughs> it's so <laughs> heartbreaking player maybe yeah poor winslow it, it, the book is so i mean in the movie you get no background on him whatsoever he just appears is a kook um, and then is maimed horrifically and becomes even kookier. And the book is like so affectionate towards him and his idiosyncrasies and his background and his like love for Phoenix and what he feels that she gives to him. It really, and then it carries through the rest of the book in a way that is like necessary, I think, to continue to be like, don't, don't kill people, man. No, you're a sweetheart. <laughs> but in the movie, you're like, you're a fucking freak. Do it. Do murders. Bill Finley, always, always De Palma's uh, favorite weird little freak. He played. <laughs> there's, there's a moment in in uh, the movie where Winslow is is scampering up a staircase, and the camera is kind of following handheld, and it's it's uh, a direct quote of another sh scene in De Palma's first movie, um, where 
uh, Bill Finley is doing the same thing as a weird little freak who's trying to kill somebody <laughs> scampering up. Uh, and then if you watch, which you shouldn't, uh, De Palma's The Black Dahlia, uh, Bill Finley is in there as a weird little freak who does murders. And it's kind of like heartwarming to see them back together as like old men doing it one more That's time. That's so nice. I believe William this Finley has passed. full of weird little freaks. Oh, is it? Yeah. To be fair. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You could say like, oh, you know, the weird little freak in Phantom of the Paradise. And everyone would be like, there's seven of those. Which one? I need more information. Well, I mean, to begin with, like, you know, this, this sex god, Swan, everybody is always talking about Swan, the sex god. And then out steps this weird little freak, <laughs> Paul Williams, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who's the um, best. Not... I mean, the best yeah. and very sexy in his own way. So I get it. Yeah. But like reading the book first, knowing that Paul Williams was in the movie, but not knowing where, I was like, well, obviously he's Winslow Leach. Like, certainly he's a weird little freak. Um, and Swan is like a sexy, like 50 year old guy. And that is simply not the case. I, I'm trying to remember. If <laughs> I it was is, so wrong. I wonder if it was one of those things where like he talked to Williams about being Winslow, I don't know. One of those Pineapple Express things. Do you know that that they like deliberately swapped those parts in Pineapple Express? It was no. going to be Seth Rogen as as the uh, stoner and James Franco as the buttoned up guy. Obviously, that makes more sense. Makes sense. And then they said, "Oh no, it'd be more interesting to swap it." And indeed, it was good movie. Is there a novelization of that? Let's do that one. Someone who who said the thing was it you, Hannah, about the his attitude about killing? Uh, I. I did mention that he does murders. <laughs> I late. This is from late in the book, but this is a passage I really like um, where it says in his reflections, he came to like beef very well. This is Winslow beef. He saw had been like himself, a radical that didn't fit the show business equation. He had murdered beef, but the responsibility was swans as with all the rest. Swan had in some way forced him into that murder. He wasn't much concerned with killing the biker, having been through near murder at biker hands himself. Now, this is two different justifications, which is why I find it so interesting. It would be really easy to be like, Swan wronged him so much that any killing he did was justified. But he says that, and then he's also like, also, if somebody tries to hurt you, you can kill them. <laughs> Here's a question. Do we think he liked beef well is a, is a, is a play on words? He liked beef well enough? That's cute. I like it, but also there's a gross way to eat beef. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. yeah. Winslow seems like somebody <laughs> with impeccable taste in uh, in fine dining, though. So, mm. especially <laughs> once he has those metal teeth. Yes. Something I oh, really I didn't understand. Not that. in the book. Yep. <laughs> not in the book. Yes. In two viewings not. of the film, I didn't get that at all. Why did they take his teeth? They say it's for like medical research or something. And they say like, you all signed up for this program, I think even. And he says, I didn't sign up and they just do it anyway. It's all just the like, sort of over the top tragedy of this situation. Yeah, that, that struck me as very odd. They were like, because of infection, we'll take all your teeth. And I was like, oh, is talk that about that more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that actually um, it is backward engineered from the final look of the Phantom, which features the like sharp metal teeth. And you have to justify those because they are crazy. And so there is a scene <laughs> in the movie where he gets metal teeth. Um, I mean, in general, I would say in the book, everything is so much more grounded in a way. Like everything mm -hmm. crazy is still happening, but you get so much more like A to B to C to D that 
like Winslow stalking around the theater. He changes costumes like five or six times. He's not always in the Phantom. He's always a he's biker. He's not always being. <laughs> yeah, he's like mostly a biker, um, doing something about his horribly maimed. That's face, what I couldn't tell. I is he like? Is he wearing like? There's references to makeup. Does he apparently just have perfect makeup on the whole time? We're way uh, off, way off of the movie here. I couldn't. Well, the way it is described in the book, I was like, so he has like a scar. He has like a bad scar. I didn't realize his face was gone. Right. Like half his face is gone. Very different descriptive language use than the visual language of the film. It's just a very different experience spending time with like Winslow in the movie and the book. And I, it's like for me, having come to it book first, I just feel like I've been spun on a chair really, really fast. And then it's like I'm playing pin the tail of the donkey and I'm never going to find it. <laughs> Well, and you said like... I, the whiplash has been. I can't wait to spend time in like dingy 70s New York. <laughs> any any like version of this movie that you imagine could never be matched by what's on screen because you could never write on the page what is on screen. So I, I can only barely imagine what the Phantom of the Paradise as a naturalistic adaptation of a novel would seem to be. <laughs> and I wish I had done it that way a little bit it sounds really interesting speaking though if you you mentioned that the the world of the book is more grounded i was so struck by like this is a world where people eat yogurt there's a big passage like there's two moments about eating yogurt and like people go shopping with their friends in this version of phantom of the paradise which every character in that other movie seems to have been like cryogenically frozen the second they're off screen and then they get shoved <laughs> into the real world to enact this bizarre mess and then back into their cryo chamber. I mean, I think I really like about the book is how matter of fact the writing is. Like you'll get passages that are like, he walked down the stairs and decided he would kill him. So he did. <laughs> and it's really like boom, boom, boom in a way that I found like really dynamic and compelling and funny. Like often just like, really hilariously funny some of the turns of phrases i just i couldn't decide and i still can't decide if this book is good or not <laughs> <laughs> i mean andrew and i were talking about this we both liked it i think it's good i had a very good time reading it i went on goodreads to log it and all of the goodreads reviews are like one star worst book i've ever read worst written book i noticed the, the exact same thing which is shocking because it's even if you don't like what it's doing with the movie, which I understand you might find jarring as a fan of the film, uh, it's perfectly decently written. And maybe I have read enough horrific novelizations that I know what a poorly written novelization is like. This is not that. This is a well-written book. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. That's one of the things I, I, I try to get at with, like, if someone has a history with novelizations, which honestly is rare with our guests. Usually it's just somebody who's like, I like this movie. Why'd you make me read this book? It sucked. <laughs> Have you read something, a novelization before that you considered a dud or a stinker? No, I mean, not that I remember. The only other novelization I remember reading distinctly is Tom and Jerry the movie, which it, not <laughs> not the one from like four years ago, but the one from when I was a little kid. Um I just remember reading that book distinctly because I think even at that point I was like, this is a desperate move. This is somebody who just can't stand to not be watching movies to be reading Tom and Jerry, the movie, the book. <laughs> so maybe that's my answer. That's the disappointing one. I, I feel as if the a review of this book that is like, you know, one star doesn't, you know, replicate the feeling of the music or whatever. It, not to invalidate that opinion, but that to me screams like, people don't know what a novelization can or should do 
because there's a lot offered in this book where even if I'm going, I don't like the choices. I don't like that they, and for the listener, they completely excise the fact that uh, Swan's made a deal with the devil. Just gone. Just not in there. No Dorian Gray element. It's crazy. <laughs> they, they foreshadow it. In the beginning of the book, there's a passage where Swan is, is like, oh, yeah, good thing I, I look so young. I made that deal with fate ages ago. And it's like, it's said in a way, fate is capitalized. And it's said in a way where it's like a turn of phrase. As a reader, you wouldn't be like, he literally made a deal with the devil. But as someone who's seen the movie, I'm reading it going, fate is capitalized because there is a reveal later in this book. And then the reveal just doesn't happen. Very odd. So... I think that's sloppy, but it's sloppy in a way where the book is taking such weird liberties and it's adding so much and it's like it's finding new ends to these scenes and everything. Even if I didn't prefer it to the movie or if I didn't like it that much, I don't think I'd be like, this is without merit. Yeah, this is a limitation of people's ability to like take art at its face, I think. That, like, because this is related to a movie, people want it to be related to the movie and can't, like, separate those things. And I understand Mm -hmm. that I've also sometimes come to a novelization or whatever and been like, boo, I cannot divorce my relationship from the movie to this book. I totally understand that. Um, In the same way, like, I hate to continue to circle back on this, but, like, the way the complaints about Halloween ends are like, well, it's not a slasher movie. And I'm like, yeah, take it on its what it's giving you. And this is a book where I'm like, take it for what it's giving you, which is not the movie. It's a totally different thing, but it's good for what it is if you can, like, step away from the movie, mm-hmm. which I understand is hard for people sometimes. I get it. I got frustrated every time it was too close to the movie because I was like, I've seen the movie. I want more <laughs> of this Bjorn <Yes>. nonsense. <laughs> the Bjorn nonsense is, like, so special. The beginning of the book, Hannah, that you were talking about how it... it you know has all these added chapters and you were excited to see those i think that like see those in the movie i think that those added chapters really replicate the feeling of watching the movie for the first time because i of course did both of those in rapid succession this movie i I mean i want to find a letterbox list for like films like this and by the the comparison i'm making is like phantom of the paradise death becomes her like these movies were like the first 15 minutes have six acts and just go raising probably Arizona. Videodrome would raising count. Arizona. Sorry. Um, raising Arizona. That's great. Yeah. Like just like these movies where you turn it on and you're like, I am speeding in a car and I feel unsafe. So much story <laughs> is going by. And I, I reading this book after watching the movie, I kind of got a little more of that juice because I was thinking, okay, this movie has a lot of weird twists and turns, but I know about them now. And then I open it up and there's even more twists and turns added towards the beginning so that was like empirically wonderful for me i was like this is a great way to bring the spirit of a movie onto the page i'm just thinking about movies with six act first scenes now southland tales i think does that a little bit right i haven't seen southland tales that's a uh, lynch no oh inland empire is lynch southland tales is oh. richard richard kelly the one that he did after uh donnie darko have you seen this movie hannah Mm-mm. Oh no! Well, Pretty you should bad. watch it, and you should do an episode on the three-part comic book prequel series that is essential reading to understand the movie. And the movie makes no sense without it. And nobody <laughs> that actually read them. sounds good. Nobody read them or knows they exist. <laughs> well, it's amazing. That actually sounds right up our alley. Do it. It's the best. Such it's such a such a good movie. Once you can make any sense of it, which is almost impossible. I mean, I. 
Phantom of the Paradise, I tried to explain it to my dad after watching it. It's a great exercise. He was exercise. like, I don't understand what happens. And I was like, oh, everything and nothing. Like, it is so plot dense. And also, I was like, he sells his music and then he wants it back. So he becomes the Phantom of the Opera. But it's like a rock opera this time. <laughs> okay, yeah, yes, that is technically true. But also, there's a million other things happening that are indescribable. <laughs> You have to, like, watch it and let it wash over you. Because there's no way to describe, like, okay, well, Paul Williams plays, like, a sexy record producer. And my dad was like, I'm sorry, stop. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was like, you just, you just take it at face value. It makes perfect sense within the movie. I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sexy. Got it. Yes. It's almost more bizarre in the retelling because in the retelling, <laughs> you can start saying things like, and of course, Paul Williams plays the singing voice of the Phantom, though not the speaking voice. It's like the, the, the act of hearing about it is almost stranger than just having it wash over you. And like, maybe we should just have, maybe we should do this because I think it's a good idea. Um <laughs> Have just the Phantom of the Opera corner for a second. What What is y'all's relationship with the Phantom of the Opera? Zilch for me, but Hannah loves musical theater. I do. I like the musical. I at one point read the novel, but like a very long time ago, and was like, musical good though. Not like the book is bad. It was just like, it's another book that like, the adaptation is probably at this point more famous in some ways. And there's a bunch of shit in the book that I was like, I don't need that. I don't care where the Phantom came from. <laughs> I don't care. I love that he's a basement ghost. That's all I need to know about him. And this book is doing a similar, like, here's a whole background on Winslow Leach, where you're like, no, he's the Phantom of the Paradise, though? Mm. I'm not sure I need to know his whole deal. Uh, he He's so creepy and goofy when he is the Phantom. And because you know so much about him, he's, like, not scary at all, <laughs> which would be fun. If he was. Anyway, I like the Phantom of the Opera. That was a side thought. I'm ostentatiously yeah. using my phone in front of you. Sorry to be rude. It's it's because not at all. I'm trying to remember. This is this is more than an adaptation of the book. This is an adaptation of one very specific movie version of Phantom of the Opera, and I believe it is this one that starred yeah Claude Rains, the Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera is what this is not like. Not the more famous Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. Absolutely not. This Delightful. is a very close riff on the Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera, where you also, he is he is a tortured genius who loses his music to a devilish producer or whatever the period appropriate version of a producer is, has a horrible accident. I think he falls in a river and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very close. Wow. And then you add in the somewhat half-baked uh, picture of Dorian Gray element, too. And and the Faust elements are there, yeah, too, yeah. which are semi-explicit. Oh, right, with Faust or Foster, as it is referred to <laughs> yes. yeah, throughout the book. But he references Faust as well. Mm -hmm. He's just like, this is based on Faust. Yeah. Well, like, in the book, he shows up and he's like, it's based on Faust. And I was like, cool, he's pretentious. And then they take it and they strip it of all his, like, artistry and pretension. And they rename it to something more palatable and American. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get what's happening. And clearly the movie's like, people are stupid. It's Faust. Let's make it very clear. Although the production they put on looks a little bit more like a Frankenstein. A little unclear what's it's actually happening in the story. What the situation with Winslow's cantata is, is uh, very, very vague. <laughs> a mystery to me. I think the reason that the 
edition of the like Winslow explainer chapters works for me. And I mm-hmm. haven't seen Phantom of the Opera. I'm, I'm sorry that I continue to have a contentious relationship with musical theater. I would love to love it. Uh, would you? The, I mean, you're not trying too very my, hard. I disagree. <laughs> I really, for someone who like consistently is like, wow, I'm not enjoying this musical. I have, I have tried a lot. Well, you only have about three months before you cannot see the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway as it was meant to be seen. So you should hurry. Listen, there were 12 episodes in the last season of Authorized, and two of them were musicals. I'm I'm allowing this to happen. You should see the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. And you only have, from time of recording, about three months to do it. Oh, wait, then let's let's put a pin in this. And here is where Andrew will drop in his review of Phantom of the Opera, which he has seen because it's now three months later. What did you think of it? <laughs> and we're back. Wow. Whatever that was, I'm sure it was very eloquent. It was a life changing experience for you, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. The um, explainer chapters, I think, work really well because I'm assuming the that the reason they don't work well for fan of the opera is because they're taking away some level of mystique, right? Mm-hmm. But Winslow doesn't have mystique in this movie. We're with him from square one, and he's this underdog with big dreams. And even in the movie version where he doesn't get all the backstory, he still gets knocked down, spat on, framed for a crime, you know, horribly abused in prison. All this stuff we're with him for, so... It's not like I'm going into the book going like, oh, yes, Winslow, the, the, the mysterious phantom. What's he like? I agree with you. I also agree with you. That was a non-controversial point. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I like those chapters. I like having more backstory on Winslow. Uh, and as you say, because the perspective of the movie is from his perspective. He is the protagonist that we follow consistently. That's not true in Phantom of the Opera. And so it's once you get backstory on the Phantom, you're like, oh, that kind of ruins his uh, mystery and terror. But I want to be soft on Winslow the whole time. I feel bad for him. Well, Very bad. How could you not feel bad for, for William Finley, who just has sort of oh. the, the most sort of bizarre, borderline grotesque, but very like puppy doggish face. He's a beautiful soul, you can tell. <laughs> Big, beautiful eyes. Yes. Weird looking guy. And not particularly... I don't. I just don't want to let it go by that that the version of Winslow in the book apparently has a thick Maine accent and intense Yankee values, which <laughs> yes, Bjorn hits really hard. What a Yankee Winslow wow. is, and I found that there are some delightful. wonderful lines. I agree, where he's like, "Well, as we know, as a Yankee, Winslow was good with his hands, and yes. therefore was able to build a this, <laughs> that, or the other." And I was just like, "That's a little touch that I love. I love that kind of sprinkling." of color and like character building that's like just, i don't know uh, just every single time one of those popped up i was like fuck yeah but he takes it in both directions because at another point he says something along the lines of like he was obdurate like everyone from new england and you're like what <laughs> yeah there's also a point where someone's like swan didn't realize he was a new englander and therefore <laughs> would behave like this it's great it's great <laughs> Uh, one thing I, I wanted to hit early in the book here is the passage where Swan talks about or thinks about why he likes Winslow is pretty good because it's easy in the movie to see it as sort of this like monolithic, 
He's just playing him. He wins over his trust. He steals from him. Then he wins over his trust again. He bricks him into the studio. But uh, early in the book, we get this. <clears throat> Swan was offended by musical klutzery, and he had been exposed to a lot of it over the past several hours. He was through being amused with Philbin's plastic hippie clothes and the endless line of no-talent kids. So when Winslow Leach arrived, Swan was not put off by his ill-fitted jeans, bad hair, and ugly spectacles. Swan heard the bravura note in his playing, the oblivious confidence of genius. He also heard the irrevocable one-octave voice, and knew nothing could be done about this. But the music tickled a place in his spine, a difficult place to reach by massage, acupuncture, or anything at all. He was tickled by Winslow's virginity, his primal and, totally, and total ignorance of social reality. How to kiss ass. That ass needed to be kissed in this particular business at all. Which is... It's so funny that he's like, I see his virginity. When, like, one chapter before this, Winslow is, like, fucking Phoenix. Uh, like, day one in New York City. I mean, he still carries, like, a virginal aspect about him, which I like that the book is not um, sex negative. But it's just a funny little piece of, like, you might look at this guy and think that he does not fuck, but he does. What I love about that passage is that in the movie, it's a little confusing. This, this, this conflicting emotion that swan is going through i love the music i hate the man this is just like what novelizing is good for is to put a paragraph in where he goes i see the promise but this is not the instrument this is not the voice to deliver it mm -hmm. and also i'm making other value judgments about this guy this is just like good stuff from biarna where he's like you know this is a hole in the story that could be filled and uh, yeah, I just like it. I just like it it's, too. And I like good. Bjarna and I want to read his other books. He wrote other books, right? Okay. Bjarna. <laughs> I think I, he did. I used to do, I used to do like uh, author bios. I've kind of fallen in love with them. But one reason I'm, I didn't do one on this guy too is he, I'm pretty sure he died because he just stopped tweeting in 2016. But he, his politics were a little upsetting. Uh, oh, no. He. I'm grabbing my phone. Pardon me. <laughs> He did at one point, uh, you'll, you'll see it even if you go to his Twitter, one of his last tweets is something where he's just like, damn, Megyn Kelly really is the pinup girl of conservative media. Mm. It's very strange. Oh, um, well, it sounds like he doesn't like anybody. Trump's foundation is penny anti-contemptible. The Clinton Foundation should scare the brownies out of you. His last tweet ever as of now. That's him, but that's him. That's a, not to, not to totally derail the episode that's a pro-trump tweet in my opinion i mean it's it's a like well you know you trump, know he's many, not so bad many <laughs> 70s liberals became very conservative that's a fact all of his bios that he wrote are like i was born into a communist leftist family and i left my dumbass parents in the dirt really he like has said that in so many places on the internet well wow. that is actually fascinating because like so much of this does kind of grow out of like the the counterculture like de palma's like sort of 70s sort of he's not really a hippie but like you know draft dodger sort of scamp attitude is is all over this movie and ha have you guys seen his sort of earlier um movies that i've only seen like six of the big ones okay <laughs> i'm not all up on yeah, my i Dabama. have not seen pre-sisters any of these mm. yeah it's just this movie really like i said it, it has all of the movies in it but one of the things that 
a couple of his early movies are about is, um, you know, hating the Vietnam War and not wanting to go to Vietnam. Uh, they're, they're sort of like zany satires on the theme of sort of loose counterculture stuff. Um, and then he did this incredible movie called Dionysus in 69 that is Lord knows which Greek tragedy, something to do with Dionysus, I'm sure. Um, there was a there was an avant-garde theater company. I swear this connects. Um, there was an avant, <laughs> avant-garde theater company that was doing an avant-garde, uh, like immersive theater reinterpretation of some Greek tragedy to do with Dionysus, or not tragedy, some Greek. The Bacchae. I'm looking it up. Sure, thank you. Oh, thank you. Great. I was, I was going to be welcome. very impressed. Although not impressed. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I studied theater, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. But she, she seems like she would know, know that. So they, they do this uh, sort of immersive uh, performance. I think it starts with the cast like getting naked and fondling each other. And then the audience gets to get in on it too. And everyone's sort of like, and it's get naked if you feel like it sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then the play starts. Um, and, and Bill Finley is in it as Dionysus. And De Palma filmed it. He did like the official filmed version of this play. I think it's incredible. Um, it's where he started the sort of um, split screen thing. But that play Mm -hmm. and this movie share a sort of concern with sort of terror of crowds and crowd mentality and the way that sort of people can be whipped up by things. And that that seems, again, vaguely sort of counterculture-y Vietnam era, like, think for yourself, man, like, isn't it scary the way that the man is trying to control us all and turn us all into animals or whatever, it's fascinating that Bjorn is apparently hates fucking hippies because <laughs> that really changes <laughs> yeah. your, your attitude Phoenix to this so much. He hates Phoenix so yeah, much. Hannah go off reading the book. I also didn't like Phoenix because the way she's presented is as a vapid, thoughtless, fame hungry, like nothing of a girl who has no emotional involvement in Winslow at all. I think she liked having sex with him. Yeah, but like doesn't care about him or his music at all. Period. For the listener, in the book, in the book they meet and have sex prior to anything involving being at the paradise. It's they fantastic. just like have a relationship beforehand. It's so bizarre, but it's nice for me as a lover of this movie to know that Winslow is a good lay, which you would not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree. I like that information. I like that past history. Where then, when he really latches on to her, you understand why. She was, like, the first person who was nice to him in New York at all in the book. Which is lovely. Uh, and then throughout the rest of it, she's, like, a fucking hippie who does a lot of drugs and fucks around. And Bjorn's like, boo, we hate her for that. She's a villain, actually. And you are imagining, what is she, Jessica Harper? That's that's her name, right? Like, this yeah. incredible, mm-hmm. I think it's it's, maybe it's her first role, this movie. And it's this incredible performance and it's like don't do this to her <laughs> leave her alone yeah. and her in the movie like her face is so angelic almost she has this really innocent sweet sort of like girl next door kind of look and the book is like she has crazy long hair like a dirty hippie and it's constantly touching her, <laughs> which is gross and i don't understand why he's so cruel to her when it seems so pointed like in the faust story She's like the great love, right? Like that's part of Faust is this idyllic, perfect woman that Faust loves and loses, um, but who is capable of redeeming his soul and then can't. 
And that's what Phoenix is for Rinslow. But again, also she can't. And she's sad about it in the movie. And in the book, it's like she couldn't give a fucking shit. In the book, she's like, this is where my life took me. Yeah, it uh, it ends. Um, the movie ends with her sort of locking eyes with him in this tragic moment. Does it? Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, the movie does end with uh, the book. Rather, does end with her just in this this flood of ecstasy, oblivious to the violence happening around her. It is hateful. It's it's so interesting. <laughs> and in a story with very few women, very few be, like, is the that uber feminist or whatever. Like I usually, it's fine. It's okay. But like you kind of, it feels like he just is like women. Women, huh? Yeah. And uh, Brian De Palma is like, women, good. We like women. And Bjorn is like, I don't like women. Women are sluts. Women are women. <laughs> yeah. And it's so opposite. Uh, the tone of the film and the way the film treats her. It was very surprising to me uh, going from book to film. I have something of a crude question just because it involves a crude passage. But you know how like in life people will make, or in modern movies even, people will make distinctions between like having sex and making love, and we all know what they mean. What the heck does the part of this book mean where, where, what's that? I wish I didn't know what that means because it's a distinction I find truly disturbing and and just, did you see that movie? What was the Bob Odenkirk, John Wick movie like a year ago? Like nobody? Nobody. Yeah, yeah, or maybe two years ago. Uh, There's a scene in there where he, he very sort of woefully says to his wife, like, we haven't had sex in a year. We haven't made love in two years. And like, I wanted to <laughs> knock a star off on Letterboxd for that line. It was That's the only way you use the phrase make love in a movie, period, is the difference between fucking and making love. And it's right. always embarrassing. Yeah, but nobody, nobody is good because he, I mean, just to spoil the whole movie, he puts a claymore on the front of a shield and runs at a guy to kill him, which is cool. Not realistic. That doesn't matter. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody is a, a work of realism. It's like Ken Loach for America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun to have a movie that is Bob Odenkirk, uh, Christopher Lloyd, and, and it's the RZA, right? That's the trio. Oh, God, right. It does go to these bizarre places in the end, doesn't it? I don't remember who it is. Christopher Lloyd is in it. That movie. I, I was not a fan of that one. Is there a novelization of that one? <laughs> Uh, there's, I, there basically aren't novelizations except for the Halloween movies after oh. the year 2000. Okay. It's very sad. There's a passage in this book that I don't have on hand where after they sleep together, uh, Winslow and um, Phoenix, he's like, yeah, she knew how to lay, but not how to ball. And I was like, what is the distinction between these? That's uh, full 70s stuff, it feels like. Why did we let go of ball as a euphemism for sex? It's the best. Why did we stop that? Where did it fall no, off? Guys, we can do it. We can bring it back. Great idea. The 70s, let's they're back. I mean, it makes me think of heat. It makes you think of right? heat? Yeah, because in heat, Pacino goes, you can you can sit in my house, you can ball my wife, but you can't watch my TV. Does he say that? Let's call Blake. What time is it in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> it's the middle of the day. I right? would win that one. Yeah. I'm ready to double down <laughs> in sure any way you right. want. I'm going to message Blake and let's <laughs> see if he gets back to us by the end of the episode. Speaking of the sex in this book, Uh, There's more explicit orgy stuff. And then at Mm -hmm. the end, like a very matter of fact, unsuccessful sex scene between Swan and Phoenix where like he can't really get it up and she's too high to care. Let me me pull this up, Hannah. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's so good. It's on 119. It's a thing where if this book liked Phoenix at all, 
you would say like, well, her sex scene with Winslow is like easy and they really get each other physically as well as intellectually and artistically. Like they have a real connection. And this unsuccessful sex is a clear sign that she does not go with Swan and their thing together is bad and toxic and whatever. It's not working. Um, but this book Definitely. fucking hates her. So I think it's just to have her have a bad time. This, this I will say, I mean, look, I, I don't, I'm not crazy about Bjarna as a person. I love the book. I am. And this is a passage. I hate abs- the book. Love the politics. <laughs> my, my opinion is distinctly pro Bjarn. <laughs> I know. I saw you retweeted the Megyn Kelly thing during this record. Okay, here we go. In the water bedroom, Swan was having his own problems, which were more subtle, but still very annoying. He was only too aware that he was not getting off on Phoenix, except in a shallow, gamesome way. It was a long time since Swan had bedded with one person, much less under pretensions. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. It it says he had only, it had been a while since he did it with one person, much less under pretensions of genuine romance. And then it goes on to be like the cocaine was supposed to help, but it wasn't really helping. But two golden ideas there. First of all, that he sort of skates by by having like 20 women at a time because it's so (laughs) obviously for his pleasure uh, and because he could never be expected to to please 20 women. And then also him just being like, plus, I really got to perform because I'm like saying I love her. Jeez. And in the in the movie, you... I, I never believe that these two have had or would have sex in the movie. They just kind of caress and writhe all over each other, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Whatever the movie yeah. textually would have you believe, that is that is all I can imagine those two characters doing. And so this just really upset me, the, like, the sort of <laughs> side novella about Swan being unable to become aroused for Phoenix. Didn't care for it. So much so much sex stuff in this book I didn't care for. It didn't need Philbin and Swan double teaming a, I believe, quote, uh, big black haired girl from Alabama. For some reason, that really stuck in my brain. Yeah, I remember that one. And this just those little those little Bjarn details from Alabama. You wouldn't get that from everybody, but Bjarn sprinkles it in. And it's enough that it makes her a person. And you're yeah. like, oh, boy. Um, there's also a part early on where... When Phoenix is auditioning, I think, Swan is like, ah, she was an okay lay, but I wouldn't go back to her. And he's like forced to here. And he's like, she's just another boring girl. She's not doing anything special. I can't. I've had too much sex. I'm bored. I don't know. I've I bristle at the, at the equation, even, of these two sex scenes, which I think are very different. The... The 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 black haired girl from Alabama one. That's just like, why the fuck did you put this in this book? This is gross. Whereas the Swan Phoenix scene, it's is, crucial. Uh, a, it, you don't. Well, I don't know. You don't need it in the book, but it's like basically commenting on the way he has created an ecosystem for his himself that's based on him succeeding. And the moment that he needs to bring any merit forward to make a situation succeed, he can't. Yeah, I mean, neither can she, to be fair. Like, between the two of them, they just, like, can't make it happen. And they're like, let's right. do cocaine. Let's do lotsitate. Let's do drug. Like, let's do other pills. Let's do, I don't know, is it, uh, should we try this? And, like, it's just bad sex. <laughs> and it's so <laughs> rare to encounter bad sex in fiction that I really appreciated it. Well, you should look into the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards, one of my favorite things that exists. 
I don't mean badly written sex. Oh, okay. I mean two characters who are having a bad time. Oh, you're <laughs> you right. Know? There isn't enough of that. And I often, you know, people in books and movies are good at sex, and that's great. Good for them. But that's not how life is, especially the first time you have sex with a person. It's often weird, awkward, and unsuccessful. It takes a while to get good at it. Andrew, you opened your mouth like you were about to say that's not a problem no, I have. No, I'm, I'm aware that what I'm about to say is just going to make it sound like I can't fuck, which is fine. <laughs> but the, something that I agree with you, Hannah, something that I wish existed in uh, more movies is the moment, and I think this comes from like both people in any relationship, the moment where you're just like, I just don't think I really have it tonight. And the other person is truly okay with it. They're like, hey, we fuck every day or like all the time which like in movies it's always like you know she wasn't in the mood what's going on or he couldn't get it up what's going on it's like you never see just like hey whatever try again (laughs) there's all sorts of like realistic sex that you just don't get in fiction and i wish we could have a little bit more of it Mm -hmm. i understand the fantasy of what if sex was good every time but sometimes it's nice to be like (laughs) ah even movie stars don't have perfect sex (laughs) you know It would be startling if people, like, gasped and moaned from, like, touch as much as they do in film. (laughs) If somebody did that when I started to touch them, I'd be like, did I do something? Are you okay? Are you faking? (laughs) Are you super faking? totally. I'm notably silent during this sex conversation because we did start this conversation with, and I'm friends with your wife's brother. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. Yeah, Andrew and I are unmarried people. We can talk about sex all we want. Oh, I mean, I'll I'll talk about sex, just not with my wife's brother's friend. <laughs> What's gonna get back to him? I was gonna I was gonna really, <laughs> you know, get into it on here. Otherwise, and I was like, oh, I forgot. That was really weird. Charlie did ask me to report in afterward. <laughs> um, Good. Okay, something that I just want to bring up that I haven't fit in is that early-ish in the movie, not so early that a million things haven't happened. We've already gotten to he's escaped and he is the Phantom. But the first thing he does is the Phantom, the bomb in the car, which is that incredible sequence that sort of confuses the eye where (laughs) you got the split screen and so much going on on both sides of the split screen. Uh, Both times I watched the movie, I was like, this is hard to look at, but in a beautiful way. Well, it's his touch of evil scene. He's he's riffing on touch of evil, that, that classic opening shot with the bomb, but he's also doing split screen. So Brian De Palma mm-hmm. doing the most. But go on, sorry. No, no, you're, no. Uh, so I texted Hannah today because I was like, something I'm definitely going to bring up on the episode is my favorite line from the book, which is, you know, that the, the song during that scene is like singing about cars and they're discussing carburetors. Carburetors, and, man. That's what life is all about. That's the opening line. And I said to Hannah, I was like, I'm going to talk about my favorite line in the book, which is, if someone stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself. <laughs> then I go into the book, I can't find it. And I'm like, what What the fuck? So I rewatched the movie. It's not there. And I'm like, did I dream about Phantom of the Paradise? Is that what happened? But I think I have it figured out. <clears throat> Ethan, you just... At time of recording, interviewed the author of the Halloween Ends novelization. Paul Brad Logan, yes, wonderful guy. Yeah, we are interviewing him in like three weeks. I said that assertively as though you said he wasn't. He's a wonderful guy, jeez. 
it's it's a line from like chapter one of his novelization that I was listening to last night. Is if someone stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself. Is in the the novelization of Halloween Ends. It's Michael Myers. I'm ninety (laughs) five. Okay, I'm ninety five percent sure this is true. I almost emailed Paul about it before the episode to be to be sure, but. I believe, so my copy of Halloween Ends has been delayed, like, in shipping from Amazon. So I started listening to the audiobook. And the beginning of the book is, like, a continuation of the end of Halloween Kills with, like, Michael still killing. And he he kills some guys who are, like, working on cars. And I think one of them has a bumper sticker or there's, like, a jokey sign that says, if someone stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself. Wow. I'm sorry. I have... I have wow. What I, a... I have the the ebook of the Halloween Kills. I know. I just went. I was like, should I buy it? Novelization. No, I have it. I'm pressing search. I mean, ends, I'm, not kills. Oh, yes. Sorry, Halloween ends. I'm not finding anything that you're talking about. Okay, I'm there searching is a the word that I'm I searching, dreamed this. I'm searching the word carburetor. I'm searching the term "kill myself." It's not in there. <laughs> I love that you made this up, Andrew. That's really beautiful. Mm. I'm going uh, to double down on this in the in the interview and be like, "What? So why did you throw that joke in?" The word carburetor is not in the book Halloween Ends. You know, I, I believe oh my God. carburetors are really expensive, and if someone stole my carburetor, I would kill myself. I get it. Look, I couldn't replace I, it. My car's over. I am can be a funny person, but like, <laughs> I'm not giving myself the credit of having like dreamed. This joke up, which I think is legitimately funny. There's I'm no gonna find bumper sticker in the book Halloween Ends. Not even that. I was like, maybe he just got <laughs> okay. the sticker joke wrong. I, If I had anything wrong, it would be the bumper sticker. I believe there's just text in the beginning that, like, in, in the, you know, diegetically, in the world of Halloween Ends. <laughs> so I just Googled. This is so stupid. I just Googled. If someone stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself. And Google was like, you're not alone. Help is available. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> oh my God. I feel so stupid. Oh. Please call 911. Please call 988. Like, please. <laughs> so this is this is not my first podcast. This is my favorite cul-de-sac I've ever gone down on any podcast. It's the, <laughs> the Mandela effect about the carburetors kill myself line. Oh my God. Oh my god. This is very good podcasting. <laughs> it's from something. I will find it. Good luck Googling it. <laughs> put it in quotes too to say like I don't mean it. This is a quote. And still <laughs> I keep doing this to Hannah, making her Google things. There's there's also this weird thing in Halloween ends that says, Can I marry a teenager? She's like Googling it. <laughs> Fool me once. Ugh. This is over B dropping in from the future. Uh, just so that I don't get a million tweets, I figured it out. It was just some image going around social media, a meme of sorts that was just a shot of someone's bumper sticker that said, if someone stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself. So, yeah, I guess my brain was just really addled this particular week. <laughs> Wait, but but you were listening to the audiobook of Halloween Ends. Is is it good? Should I should I do that version? Is it? I'm not thrilled with the narrator. Ooh, Uh, and that's that's a female narrator. 
which is not my problem <laughs> that it's a female narrator. But it's just not a good fit. This this particular woman is not a great fit for the text, in my opinion. Mm. So, well, I'm gonna read it as an ebook. Did did amazing? Either of you do the the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood audiobook? Not the audiobook. It's Jennifer Jason Lee, right? Yeah, done by Jennifer Jason Lee. I just found it so bizarre. I I tried to listen to it, and it it just it didn't fit the text. It just it it should have been Kurt Russell. I it's wonder I wonder why they did boy that. Boy heavy book. Yeah. Uh, anytime a celebrity reads an audiobook, it's always a little weird. Like that's not really their skill set. Um, like Jake Gyllenhaal reads the audiobook of The Great Gatsby, or one of that's them. an amazing one. Are you crazy? It's good. No, I was about to say that's kind of the exception. He gets it. Yeah, he knows exactly how to do it. That's like my favorite audiobook. But every other time, I've been like, "Oh, that here's a celebrity reading a book. I love celebrities. I'll listen to this one." I'm always like, generally. But what's really fucked up is the celebrity that jumped to mind for me was Jake Gyllenhaal doing another audiobook. So, Jake. <laughs> Your audiobook agent is is doing effective work. Your your uh, brand awareness is high. <laughs> he's incredible. Oh uh, well, he's an intellectual. I'm surprised that like Chris Pine isn't just like I read audiobooks all the time. I love to read. <laughs> I do scientific text, philosophy. Oh wait, we've we've, we've got word from Blake Howard. We've got word <gasps> from Blake Howard. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, it is. Ball is fuck. That's the message. <laughs> Wait, that's what you asked him? Nope. He, no, no, that's not a great answer to my question. It's just what he said. <laughs> I said, we need to know. Oh. And I didn't just say like, we vaguely. I said, quick, I'm on authorized novelization podcast right now. And we need to know if the word ball is used <laughs> to mean sex in heat. Yes, it is. Ball, ball is, is fuck. But imagine well, it's 11 a.m. In, in Australia. And so Australian he has no accent. excuse. Yep. <laughs> Uh, wow, that's, that's fun. Thank that you. Now, now Blake Phantom is a guest on this, paradise. too. What? Is that a movie? We have a stomach bug just ripping its way through my house. I was up all night oh, with no. my six-year-old uh, who was having a tough time of it. So this is this is the time of night for me to get punchy. This is the right property to get punchy about. Yes. Yes, Andrew. S- sorry, just to get us back in. I like the line on 32 where... Uh, no, we're going to talk about other things. <laughs> we're going to spend the whole episode figuring out that kill myself thing. Yes. <laughs> there's that line on 32 where he gets like left alone with Philbin. He's like, it just said he suddenly felt the perverse weight of Philbin's personality and it made him uncomfortable. There's just like so many good lines. Like if we just spent 20 minutes being like, oh, I flagged this part for myself. This is a great line. Like we could fill that. It was just like a lot of funny little lines. Mm-hmm. There's a part like super early where he like goes to pay for his hotel and the front desk lady is just like, the narration says like she knew he would pay for the cheaper room and she even knew he would pull out a lot of cash from his pocket. I was like, oh, that's great. Winslow goes to New York City with some amount of money that was like $400, which adjusted for inflation is like $2,500. He planned ahead. Sure, but they make it out to be like he's really scraping by. I just found that odd. I mean, that's not a ton of money to go when you definitely have to pay for a hotel and you have no food and no prospects. Well, and he goes out. He very casually buys a cape that somebody else recommends because it'll like (laughs) give him a mystique or something like that. And doesn't he like he's he's making all these little he's constantly buying a bunch of cans of Coke and uh, bizarre sandwiches, very 70s sandwiches. He buys a dress and a veil and a handbag. 
He's he to complete the Winslow outfit. be shopping, so he needs his cash. <laughs> yeah. And also then Phoenix robs him. Right. Because that's what that's what women do. Women be robbing. The, speaking of the Coca-Cola fixation that the book has, he keeps drinking Cokes throughout the movie. And it's like, it reminded me of like a, a Murakami book. You guys read any Murakami? Oh, yes. <laughs> Winslow always uh, listening to jazz records and making plain spaghetti. It did remind me of that, though. Like, Murakami has this weird obsession with being like, my interests, the character will do them all the time. And I'll mention them in every chapter. He's always like... <laughs> Every every protagonist goes home and has a glass of Cuddy Sark. Every chapter. And there's always a cat. There's always a cat. That's forgivable. He he keeps drinking Coca-Cola throughout the whole book. And then there's a line at the end when he gets out of his like bricked-in prison where he's like about to do violence and it says, He drank a Coke and wished he had a gun. Lines <laughs> like that among are, us. Like, what I'm here for. These like, like <laughs> plops of sentences that just like hit you like an anvil. I should say I I read about half of this book while it was my turn with the stomach bug on Monday. I got to go first, <laughs> and so I was laid up in bed reading this in my hallucinatory state, and it matched very well. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I read it in like a flurry in like six hours, uh, which I think is the best way to read it. So, uh, I, uh, how 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 fast are we progressing through the story of this thing? Because we we have to talk about the ending, which is bananas. But how? Yeah, we we can talk about things in whatever order we want. So so go for it. Oh well, I just think it is very funny what happened to me. <laughs> I guess I was going to do like theoretically. Imagine <clears throat> if you read this book having already seen the movie, which I have. Um, mm-hmm. it's I just want everyone out there to remember this great ending where it ends with. <laughs> with Winslow ripping off the mask and you see Swan's face revealed and it's this like sort of gut punch and you you exit the movie on this bizarre high that like you're still making sense of what even happened. With this, instead, Swan is in what is essentially a suit of armor and Winslow just sticks a... He's in like riot gear. He just sticks a gun down it and shoots him. It's, yeah, it's I mean, a if lot you're less out beautiful. The devil stuff. Yeah, you gotta have a very clear murder happen. And then I'm not even sure what really happens. How is it that they both die in this one? Because in the in the movie, there's that great "if I die, you die" thing, and in this, mm-hmm. he just shoots him with a gun. So what happens to Winslow? I couldn't tell you. Why doesn't Phoenix die in the movie when everyone else dies? Because we see her signing the contract on camera. Oh, well, I... So shouldn't she be part of the death brigade? That, right. Like, you know, the, all think, these dominoes I that fall? I think that's not exactly how it works. The reason that Winslow dies is because he previously mortally wounded himself, but is not allowed to die until his contract with Swan is over. Oh. And the contract with Swan is over when Swan dies. So it trickles that way. It's not just like gotcha. the contracts end, we all die. It's you're out of your contract. when he dies. Yeah. And like... Gotcha. Like the Winslow's contract has all of those addendums in them that are like, you cannot, we we own your body, we own your soul. <laughs> what does that mean? Don't worry about it. It's a transportation. Um, everything clause. accepted is included <laughs> so or whatever. Funny. Right. What is so mean? funny? What a funny little scene. What a sad little naive <laughs> sweet little scene. Um, and I assume that Phoenix's contract is slightly different, <laughs> and she is simply released from it when Swan dies. So looking at the last paragraph, I had forgotten what what does happen is 
just a random audience member grabs Winslow's mask and stabs him with it for no reason. And Winslow doesn't mind because he's so happy that Swan is dead that he dies happy. Right. Why is his face messed up in the movie there's a lot of stuff having watched the movie twice i still don't get oh it's it's i mean it's it's supposed to be a dorian gray thing so you would think that he is revealed to be old and decrepit but he's just got a monstrous right. sort of like burn victim face. it looks like they take off the mask and it rips the skin mm-hmm. off his face right. is what it looks like i don't know mm-hmm. it's pretty ugly but it's confusing i mean is it that in the dorian gray thing not quite but sort of uh, someone else has seen his ugly picture and it breaks the spell, which is not really what's happening in Dorian Gray, but is what's happening in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen version of Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about Dorian Gray, unfortunately. <laughs> Great little book. Something about this movie that I really love when we're just talking about like things that don't completely make sense and add up is a, l- a little bit there's like at least one really distinct sort of shift point in De Palma's career. And it's right around this time. And before this point, he was making movies with his college buddies for the most part. And they were just these sort of like loose sort of inmates running the asylum. They were really into like the French new wave and they were just running around with cameras goofing around. And this is kind of the last of those movies. And it happened right after he had made his, his first attempt to go Hollywood maybe not right after I think sisters maybe comes in between sisters. Um, And so this was him back with his old crew, just making a movie goofing around. And it feels like it's held together with bubble gum and popsicle sticks and some rubber bands. And so yeah, I, I I don't want it to make any more sense than it does. I love that it doesn't make sense because that just testifies to what a sort of bizarre little operation it was. There's an embellishment in the book that's, funny that I touched on a second ago, which is that in in the movie, he's like wearing, Swan is wearing that metal mask at the wedding. It's never even really made clear that the reason he's wearing it is for protection against the bullet he knows is coming. And in the book, something that I feel like wouldn't have worked in the movie, but was funny, is he's like, I'm going to wear full police armor during the wedding. And Philbin's like, why? And he goes, it is satire. <laughs> this is a statement on police brutality in the neighborhood. That is very funny. How do we align that with Bjorn's politics? That's all I was wondering. <laughs> well, Swan doesn't mean it genuinely, so clearly uh, police should thrash people. Yes. That's probably Bjorn's take on it. Um, I would say like many novelizations, like part of their purpose is to fill in some of the gaps. And not only does this book not really fill in gaps, it creates new gaps. Yes. It's just doing the same sort of like question mark of like, wait, what happened? How did this happen? Um, in a very different like last third. So fun. So kooky. Just like a... The last third where Winslow is, as we said, it's it's very, very similar to the movie, but Winslow is in biker garb the entire time and running around. <laughs> and he, he like goes off site at one point. Like he's in the in the movie. Once he is in the paradise, he is in the paradise. Here he's like running yeah. around running errands. <laughs> like <it's bizarre. laughs> yeah, his life does not seem so horrifically impacted by his uh, gruesome maiming as it is in the film. Where it like makes him inhuman, basically to be maimed something i really liked about uh or something i I, a passage i like towards the end is swan people are freaking out because people are dying at the paradise (laughs) and 
uh, Philbin says, 20-something people are in the hospital from that crowd last night. I mean, really in the hospital. Like, a few of them aren't going to make it, maybe. And Swan goes, 5,000 were in ecstasy. Fair exchange is no robbery. And then Philbin goes, okay, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) He's just convinced by that. (laughs) I, I did love that, yeah. Also, this weird implication that 20 people maimed is equivalent to 5,000 happy. It sort of does admit that, like, maiming holds more weight, <laughs> right? Than being happy? Sure, yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. totally. Just a funny thing to see from a villain. <laughs> mm. How are you feeling? Anything else you want to hit? I'm trying to find there's a passage where Swan does an interview with oh, some the publication where he like talks about his like concept of art and like what Winslow has done, which is like absolutely we know is false, but is sort of beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right, let me see. I think this is it. God knows the 70s have needed something. I lucked out, really. Winslow Leach came to my audition rather than George Martin's or Paul Rothschild's or Dick Perry's or whoever. He was a full-blown mature artist who knew what he had to do, and we're doing it. When I look out the window and see that wonderful ferment in the streets, those looks of belief on young faces, I feel very good. It makes me realize that religion can come in on us from anywhere, which I think is pretty amazing. Uh, Nature, a loved one, a Botticelli, a song. They can all give us that intimation of immortality. The fact is, Foster is far more than an intimation. It is a complete and total explication of the truths that our cultural anxieties have obscured for better than half a century. Like, he really believes in the work or is able to talk about it in a way that is, like, transcendent. To say, Mm -hmm. like, this show is actually a religious experience and people are feeling that and that's the most important thing we could do in the entire world. And I think that is clearly what the audience is experiencing when you watch the movie. Like, people are losing their fucking goddamn minds over this thing. I would, too, if I was in that audience. What a show. Um, (laughs) And to think that, like, every night someone might die on stage and you leave the theater and you're like, oh, they really died? Wow. Wow. Like, that's amazing. I think it's all based out of that first opinion that Swan has of, of Winslow, which is that he really believes in some sort of divine intervention in the sense that, like, he believes that this... Rock opera is this like amazing pure thing, but that it's come to him through a man who shouldn't be in charge of it, shouldn't be singing, it shouldn't be like involved at all. And I think that carries through the whole the whole book. Like he, when he's giving those interviews to Rolling Stone, I think he really believes that like Foster is this incredible work of art, and Winslow Leach is incidental to it. I have one more passage I'd like to read that I think rolls together the funny New England stuff we were talking about, the funny sure. like rhythm of the writing, and also um, the other side of like, if, if Swan is like, Winslow sucks, but the music is worth it. And then the other side of that is Winslow going like, nothing is worth Swan <laughs> at all, mm-hmm. right? This is on page 136. <clears throat> it seemed to Swan that when they got through the marriage assassination, he would be home free with Winslow. He was not familiar with the New England habit of sometimes making up one's mind irrevocably about something or person and not yielding in the face of clear evidence. Zing. (laughs) But this was the way it was with Phoenix in Winslow's mind. He had long since stopped questioning that he was in love with her forever and ever. Also that Swan needed killing. Period. 
Like to wrap up all that stuff together, like both like I'll never give up. I love her completely. My love is inextricably tied to how much I hate Swan. Uh, It's just a paragraph that feels like that's good writing. It takes it all together. It takes you on this rhythmic journey of an up and a down and then this like kapow at the end. I was very impressed. And it's so funny. He's like, I love her so much. I got to kill that guy. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) Funny. The thing that, that I just sort of got a little hung up on um, and I, I sort of went down my own mind hole for a minute is what a missed opportunity we have here, <clears throat> excuse me, with Beef, who is left almost uh, entirely intact from the movie. What a lot of fun. We like haven't <laughs> talked about him at all, basically. Can you do better than Beef? You well, because there's just not, there's not that much to say about the novelization's version of him because he is fundamentally the same as the movie. The scenes don't change that much. And where is Beef's backstory, Bjarn? Are you homophobic? Is that why you you just wanted to talk about his lisp the entire time and didn't give him four chapters like you certainly could have? I would love to know more about Beef. I do kind of love that Beef arrives in the story as just like a miraculous Adonis who can do the music and is this like miracle singer sort of. He's exactly what Swan wants and we don't get to know anything about him besides like all the, the perfect aspects of him to Swan that he can like sing it. He has this like entrancing rock voice that he's bisexual which swan seems to really like about him (laughs) thinks is a good touch for the character i would like to know more about him i don't know if i need it you know what i mean for his like function within the story i don't i just want to see what bjarn would have had to say about it i just think that would have been (laughs) a lot of fun the the only beef passage i have in the whole book is the one where beef is being made to perform foster even though he wants out and has already been threatened and it just says that uh he sensed that he was caught between two maniacs. And I was like, hey, that is his situation. Ugh. Beef, so innocent. Hannah, before we wrap up here, yeah. as someone who read the book first, yeah. what's the verdict on these insert photos? Oh my God, was I pleased that they existed? I was not expecting them at all. And as I was flipping through on my, you know, with you have a, Ethan, you have a hard copy of this book. So I you do. know, looking at it, that there are pictures inside. Yes. Right? Um, I ha- I had your PDF that you so kindly scanned for us, and I had it on my little Kindle, and I was like, doop, 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 this is a book, probably, blah, 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 and then suddenly <laughs> there were pictures, and I literally was like, ooh, <laughs> like, so unbelievably thrilled. Um, I'm tr- now, tr- where do they start, Andrew? Do you have a sense of Page that? 73, or it's right after 72. 73. Okay. I'm not Andrew. The shock of, of this book being so short, and then there's like eight inserts. Yeah, that there are inserts was a surprise to me. I think they are good. And they, because I had not seen the movie, absolutely changed my conception <laughs> of what I was imagining uh, at quite a moment. Like, as we mentioned, I was like, well, certainly Paul Williams is Winslow. Right. And so I had to like, like <laughs> turn the wheel like all the way around upon these insert photos. And I had, I mean, I... I have friends who love Phantom of the Paradise. I knew what the Phantom looked like. And then you get a picture like this one, which is the most horrifying <laughs> image I've ever seen in For my life. For the listener, a mega close-up on the Phantom. Yeah, with like the teeth and the... <laughs> Just a little vignette here. Um, that that was That's when you rent the movie on iTunes, or I, I own it on iTunes, but so when you pull it up, that image of the mega close-up of the Phantom's like eyes and teeth... <laughs> is right there and we turned on the TV the other day and my 6-year-old daughter sees that and just screams. 
Yeah, traumatizing. And my four-year-old son, meanwhile, jumps up, trots over to the the DVD shelf and pulls down the Blu-ray of Phantom of the Paradise and goes, it's this. And I was like, aw, <laughs> he recognizes the, the Blu-ray box. Which, <laughs> you know, is, is for one thing, yes, I do own this thing in multiple formats. And for another, it's not great that my son is that familiar with the box art for Phantom <laughs> of the Paradise. But I'm a I cool mean, dad. So. Those are the two responses to this image, I think. Yeah. Are, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it will haunt your child's dreams for years. Until later, she's like, oh, it was that. Okay, yeah. it's probably fine now. But like, it, it will destroy her for a time. <laughs> Or you're like, what is it? I must know more. It's fascinating. It's entrancing. It's bizarre. It's like inhuman, but also clearly a person. It's it's just like the design of the Phantom is so unbelievably good and interesting. And then because he has this little bird beak, like the way that Bill Finley like moves, which is so gangly and bony, is like he's just a big bird. <laughs> Yeah, he really looks like a bird. That's a great call. It's very sweet, but like he should be scary. And then he moves a little and talks as the Phantom. And you're like, oh, he's still just a big bird guy. <laughs> so many little like trivia items just keep popping into my head. And he, he talks courtesy of the little box on his chest, which... Also uh, not in the book. No, no. But he has... he ha- Swan fits him with a, a little sort of vocoder that he wears that has little boops and beeps and colors on it. And uh, when De Palma's friend George Lucas made a little movie called Star Wars, he had a Darth Vader character who had something very similar on his chest. And De Palma got a little hot under the collar about it and was like, George, (laughs) you took my thing. And that's why I'm going to be a dickhead about your opening crawl and make fun of it until I am asked to leave the screening. (laughs) or did or did brian maybe oh no he made fun of the term the force i think and then possibly did like an uncredited rewrite on the crawl because he was like this is nonsense who could ever find anything hokey about star wars (laughs) it's our most sacred text and there's nothing silly about it that like group of fun filmmakers of like real artists and george lucas (laughs) who is an artist in his own way but like not it's like a different type of artistry it's so funny to be like i'm gonna invite the really great art my grid buddies and also artists to judge my <laughs> trashy sci-fi movie and that brian de palma was like it sucks dude it's stupid like yep. rocks <laughs> yeah. like de palma could not see like the trees for the forest he was just like this sucks you're not making art <laughs> it's amazing like all every single story of like the, the that little crew i like to hear it i love to hear it Speaking of people inhaling cocaine, like uh, <laughs> like feedbacks. I don't remember if I said that part in the in chronology or out of chronology part that we recorded. That's either a flash forward or a flash back to something I said about people <laughs> snorting cocaine like horses eat oats. Hannah Blackman. Yes? You are a very successful and famous record producer who has just attempted to have sex with a single person for the first time in years and it didn't go well congratulations i'm getting laid baby yeah yeah it's not your finest (laughs) i'm doing fine i'm not worried about it this is a really a quantity over quality thing it (laughs) is better when there's 20 women for you you have a very disappointed star on your hands who you need to have an ongoing relationship with so you need to sort of uh Mm -hmm. entertain Mm -hmm. her in some manner knowing what you know would you hand her and recommend? The handing is sort of the recommendation. Mm-hmm. A copy of Phantom of the Paradise by Bajarna Rostang? 
Um, I would. I would recommend it and hand it to her. At least it would buy some time while I go and plan her murder to get out of this goofy situation. Uh, but no, I, I really like this book. I found it really interesting. I'm glad to have gotten the excuse to watch the movie. Who knows how long I would have put it off. So, And I think they are interesting companion pieces to each other. Like, There's so much new weird stuff to glean out of this book that it's a rich text and uh, a fun companion and very readable and nice and short. And if Phoenix is too bored to read this, we have nothing in common, you know? I should kill mm-hmm. her because she's just there's nothing there for us. It's oh, there's there's not there's no future. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Ethan Warren, your best friend's carburetor was just stolen, and he keeps saying he is going to kill himself. In order to stop this from happening, would you recommend to him your hard copy of Phantom of the Paradise by Bajarno Rostang? To, to, to recap, do I think this book is an effective suicide dissuasion technique? <laughs> I mean, ultimately tell us whether you liked it, but yeah, first tell us that. Um, well, it, if you like assigned it and made it mandatory, it might uh, buy you a little time to figure out another way of helping this, <laughs> this poor soul, so I suppose so. Just have them Google, if somebody stole my carburetor, I'd kill myself, yeah, and yeah. then they'll have all the resources right. they need. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um what a what a rich text this episode has been. Um I don't know if I like this book or not. Um I couldn't tell if it was well written or not. It's got style to spare certainly. Um and it also is just so sort of like clunky and weird but in a way that's like maybe kind of artful. It it falls into this bizarre zone. Um that you might get from somebody who was kind of a kook as this guy maybe seems to have been. Um, I, I did glance a little farther down his, his Twitter. Uh, he wrote a novel called something like Epstein's Epstein's trouble or something, but it was many years. Epstein's pancake. No, no, I I said this, I said this to Hannah right when we decided on, on this book, I was like, this guy wrote a, a thriller about no real people. It's a fictional thriller in like 2016 called Epstein's Pancake. It's very funny. I'm gonna, I'm, okay, so, uh, in, I'll put, give you a peek behind the curtain. In the Boston Society of Film Critics Voting, we are, we are allowed the opportunity at the yearly meeting, every member is allowed the opportunity to halt the proceedings and just rant about something if they want to. And, uh, you know, to, to make their case, they get to put forward their case that whatever they think should win should win. Um, I'm just going to halt the recording and, and say, uh, just uh, let, let's just leave Bjarne on, on a high note and, and read a little bit of his blog post <laughs> from 2015. Is Dr. Ben Carson a Manchurian candidate? There's got to be an explanation for his alternate reality. Is he sleepwalking? Does he talk to God? That's the title of the blog post. <laughs> wow. Dr. Carson went bonkers. What's the answer? <laughs> There's a bottom line here. So, and, and if anybody doesn't remember, seven years ago, uh, Ben Carson was a spectacularly ill-fated GOP uh, presidential candidate who believed some of the silliest things he ever did here. Um, there's a bottom line. This was the here. guy who used the Pokemon theme song as his as his like walk-on music, right? Did he? Oh my god! I'm pretty sure. Ugh. Well, nothing's going to top the title of that blog post. Bjarn, I hope you're doing well. I hope you did not die in 2016, <laughs> as it seems you may have. 
Maybe he just like looked at his life and his choices and was like, I don't need to be online. Well, his last tweet also appears to have been right before the election. And if he wasn't a Trump, that's so sad for him. Maybe he got hired into the administration and was too busy to tweet. That's it. Or maybe he knew too much about (laughs) Epstein's pancake. Oh, yeah, that's right. This guy's the governor of Georgia. (laughs) Oh, Andrew Overby. Yeah, hi, what's up? Yeah, hey, you're a weird little freak. (laughs) Oh. Okay. And... Really doesn't narrow down which character I am. (laughs) I know. Well, you're a weird little freak who eventually falls into a record pressing and your face gets all fucked up and you start to feel like you can't be a normal member of society, which you weren't great at to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. So you kind of retreat into your own thing, you know, you're like working on your own projects, and maybe you're reading a bunch of books. And one day you come across the novelization of Phantom of the Paradise by our good buddy Bjarna. You're going to read it, knowing what you know now, and like it, and share it with your weird little freako friends. I'm definitely going to read it. I had a great time with this book. It um, was like thrillingly uh, adding to the story for maybe the first half. And also, I mean, there's the factor that I hadn't seen this movie before. I loved it so damn much. I am definitely going to rewatch it with some regularity. So the excitement of that discovery is sort of informing this a little bit. But the first half of the book really adds a ton. And while it remains pretty inventive, the climax is a little drawn out. But overall, I found the experience extremely rewarding. I mean, there's so many passages that we, we haven't even touched on that were so good there's uh, a whole thing where Swan gives a monologue to Winslow. Th- this book invents whole sections where, like, Winslow is, you know, hiding up in the rafters and Swan is, like, trying to coo him down. And he just gives a, a pretty good monologue about, like, I understand that, like, your artistic vision isn't f- totally being fulfilled, but he keeps saying nobody is performed as written. Like, it always gets away from you a little bit, which is an interesting wrinkle. I mean, it was the one time in this whole journey, movie and book, where I was like, Swan kind of has a great point here. Uh, yeah, the production the book is he great. mounted was hugely successful. Yes. And is that part of his devil deal? I don't know. But I would it go see that thrilling. production. Yes, me too. Um, and like, I want to, on my little high horse, I think the Juicy Fruits are a perfectly good band. And the book is like, they're trash, they're garbage, there's The nothing. movie does but not like, hate them as much as the book does. The book hates no, them. It does. Because <laughs> they're sellouts, basically, oh, yeah. is what the book thinks about them. They're untalented sellouts. And watching the movie, I was like, they are playing like nine genres of music successfully. Well, they are compelling stage presences. At the end, when they're the dooms or whatever, they have a very cool look and a very cool sound. Yeah, they're amazing. They are being served. They are serving the music well. I'm pro Juicy Fruits. Ethan Warren. The book is Phantom Cinema of, of Paul Thomas oh. Anderson. <laughs> oh. Um, American Apocrypha. That's right. What's the what's the angle? How are you writing about PTA? What's uh what's what's the selling point of this book? Well, my goodness gracious, this book has been in the can for a while and I'm almost sort of like forgetting uh, how to talk about (laughs) it after being so much the only thing that I thought about for several years of my life. For the most part, I mean, there's there's been several books out there about PTA so far and each of them devotes a chapter to each movie. Um, Two of them do it chronologically. Adam Naiman's fabulous book from uh, a year or two ago uh, aligns the movies chronologically. I think that's fascinating, but we're not here to talk about Adam's book, which you should buy. Uh, but mine. Um, 
So my book, rather than doing a chapter on each movie, sort of splits everything and talks everything talks about everything all at once. It's everything everywhere all at once, PTA style. Um, mm-hmm. where every every chapter is about one theme. And so I do a chapter on his treatment of uh, faith and belief. And we talk about every single movie. I managed to find every single movie's angle on faith and belief. Um, it's in there somewhere. And we talk about all of that at once. Um, talk about, there's a chapter on what he's like as a screenwriter, a chapter on his relationship to his influences. And so just rather than the stuff that would sort of come up here and there in the typical book about a director while you focused on the movies i i made the whole book out of the the stuff you would talk about here and there so we're we're just digging in it's sort of as nitty-gritty as you can possibly get for a whole book we talk about we i (laughs) talk about um some of the stuff that doesn't get covered in in the other books i've got a, a chapter on the music videos there has not been that kind of sustained uh, look at that stuff before, and his music videos are really, really interesting. Um, talk about his unmade movie Knuckle Sandwich, a script that he wrote when he was in his 20s that is uh, bananas and really cool. His Saturday Night Live uh, sketch, his, his little short film, all kinds of stuff. Um, I think it's a neat book. It's the kind of book I would like to read, so I wrote it instead, and I hope that other people would like to read it too. Fantastic, and this other book can we say anything about it oh the next one the the one i just uh yeah yeah i just uh signed the papers so by the time that people are hearing this i will ideally be deep in the weeds with it um on a book to be called when i paint my masterpiece bob dylan on film uh which is um my wife is texting me about the the (laughs) the situation with the stomach bug. So we'll find out what that was all about very shortly. Um, I'm writing a book about, I'm writing about, it really about, ended with yes, ball is fuck. Yes, ball is fuck. Oh my gosh. A, a rich text this episode. As I said, Bob Dylan has had a fascinating uh, intersection with the motion picture industry. He has been all tangled up in movies going back to the sixties. He directed some movies in the seventies that nobody has really seen because they are borderline unwatchable, uh, but they are fascinating. They're kind of as unwatchable as they are invaluable. Like you can't really say you totally get Bob Dylan if you haven't watched the four-hour non-linear montage that is Ronaldo and Clara. Um, and that no, is my thank you. that's the gauntlet I'm throwing down to anybody who wants to say they get Bob Dylan is shove this in your brain and then say, oh, I get it. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to try and get it. Um, and there's there's just so much cool stuff to talk about. Um, I'm not there. The the fantastic Todd Haynes biopic where Dylan is played by six, I think, actors. One of the greatest movies that again is completely impenetrable uh, unless you love Bob Dylan deeply. Um, it's the movie where he's played by Hayden Christensen, which I'm sure you haven't seen because uh, why would you have? But the the uh, the Edie. <laughs> you know, you say why would you have, and the answer. Is in the pudding. It's Hayden Christensen. There's a real chance that me at age 16 saw that movie. Well, Factory Girl, the the Edie Cedric biopic. Did you see it? I did. Well, I did. <laughs> no, it's not that good. But I'm going to talk about it in this book because Hayden Christensen plays a character who is like named uh. Schmob Schmillen because you weren't technically allowed to to say it. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about Walk Hard, probably, where uh, where John C. Riley is Bob Dylan for a hot second. That's a very funny part. <laughs> We're going to have some fun. I'm excited to start working on it. This is the first thing I thought about when, when COVID happened was I was like, everyone lost their sense of smell. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and we, are all, we were all Dewey Cox, yeah.
Yeah, it's my favorite joke in probably all of cinema is when he gets his sense of smell back and he hugs his girlfriend and he goes, you were driving a long time. (laughs) (laughs) What a picture. That movie has like six of the best jokes of uh, comedy history in it, which is, what a film, what a film. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Thank you for doing this. Truly an important canonical episode. Good. For sure, for sure. Good. I'm glad to hear it. To our listeners, please remember to rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it, go to our Patreon, which has things, and is patreon.com slash authorized pod. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at authorized pod if you think that you recognize what this is from. <clears throat> Oh no, said Winslow. It appears that I've been trapped in here. Swan has double-crossed me. He looked around frantically, trying to figure another way out of the room. Don't worry, my boy, came the cooing voice of Swan. I've left you plenty of entertainment to keep you busy. Winslow's eyes darted around, finally alighting on a small book in the corner. He realized that, yes, everything would be okay, as long as he had... The Essential Calvin and Hobbes. Good night. Okay, today's game, what's our guess on the pronunciation of this guy's last name? Rostag? Rostang. Rostang, yeah. I would guess. The Bjorn... It's German, though, right? Well, Bjorn suggests Nordic, so that's all I got So for I you. looked this up, Bjorn with an A, apparently Bjorna. Oh, Bjorn, I see that. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, YouTube even said to put like an, an uh on the end of it. So I guess the E's even getting some play. Well, was it one of those YouTubes that like just is a computerized voice telling you what to say? Mm, sounded pretty human to okay. me. Okay, you can never trust the computer voice ones. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so here's the concept of this. Uh, I was just very taken with this really shitty approximate rhyme. This should be called Rostang or Overby. Uh, we all read this novelization, of course, and I am going to quiz the two of you on whether a passage that I present was in the novelization or whether it is me mimicking it. And I am terrified. I am terrified that all of them will be very apparent. (laughs) Okay, so the rules are buzz in with your first name and then provide an answer. I just shout my own name. Yeah, that's Andrew's (laughs) like buzz in solution. Okay. For better or worse. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's something I've stuck with for whatever reason. Okay, up first. uh, Hannah, do you want to read this one? I mean, no, but okay. (laughs) Quote, Winslow breathed the low, salty sting of sex. He'd never much wanted for it before, but what he wanted wasn't dictated by what he wanted any longer. Ethan. Close quote. Ethan. Do I get to say? 
I, I don't think this was in the book because I, I think the low salty sting of sex would have haunted me more. That's, <laughs> that's my only lead. Amazing. So this was, of course, lying. Okay. So you, you, you did a good approximation. Thanks. Uh, this is, I mean, a good approximation, I'm hoping, will stump someone. This book is insane. <laughs> we'll see. I'm sorry. It's really insane, and it's a little crazy that I chose this book to do this exercise because <laughs> and it's really short. to start with. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one of those books that we read that's like a 500-page Resident Evil where you're like, I forgot 100 pages in the middle. Okay, up next. To expose his very sensitive mind to morbid recriminations about Winslow Leach would have been an enormous waste of his energy and talent. Hannah. Ethan? Okay, Hannah, you go. Hi, Hannah, yeah. on this one. I'm going to go with lying. This is, of course, a real Rostang. Ah, shoot. This is, uh, this is Winslow <laughs> thinking about how if he spends time thinking about... Uh, I'm sorry, it's Swan thinking about how if he spends time thinking about Winslow, that just won't be a good use of his life. Well, you stumped me. Congrats. Your words. Here's B. Arna. What uh, a, also fitting because I, I think handsome he's... guy. Cool looking guy. He stepped right out of killing them softly. Cool looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a good call. <laughs> Ethan up one right now to Hannah's goose egg. Uh, up next. He was at home in the booth. On the stage of the paradise, you were with him even if you couldn't see. It was like faith. It seated guilt in you long after you stopped believing in its power. Ethan. Ethan. I'm going to say it's lying. This is, of course, lying. I thought it was lying. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotta have confidence this book strikes a really weird balance between, like, really Baroque language and also very direct language that is hard to replicate because it's like it has to be flowery, but it's also you go over the top like I do in this one and it's like, it's too much, you know? Not quite right. Yeah. I don't want to say too much because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm maybe sort of getting this game wired a little bit, but we'll see how it goes. Ethan, <laughs> would you please read this? Uh, for the listener, there's a photo of New York City and a photo of um, authorized co-host Johnny Pomato, the only one currently residing in New York. <laughs> New York wasn't a place yet. It knelt in his mind as a lust. Going there could make it into everything it wasn't. Ethan. Hannah? Oh, no, Hannah, you go. Ethan. Well, no, I, Ethan was first. <laughs> rules are rules. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a delay. All right. I'm going to go lying on this one. Okay, this one, of course, is lying. I of, was also going to go lying, and I want that on the record. I like how you keep saying, of course, <laughs> as though the audience and you are aware of all of this, and, and it was born in your brains, but for us, it's... <laughs> No, I just I just feel defeated. I want to be someone who can trick you too. Well, you you did on the first you one, I think, me. right? Oh no, we'll see. Uh, just Hannah's first one. Ah, up next, we'll, re we'll review the tape. As their sense of mutual interest and respect merged, they felt very elevated, as if as if a miracle were occurring, and they could just barely stand it. Hannah, Hannah, rusting. This is, of course. Rostang. That was my guess. It's one of my favorite phrases in the book when they're getting high. Yeah, and it's, Andrew would never stoop to anything as pedestrian as they felt very elevated. <laughs> <laughs> That's only Bjarn's poetry right there. Yeah, I only have really, uh, really poetic phrases like whatever that sweet smell of sex or whatever. Salty, salty something or other. Salty sting. Salty yes. sting. 
Up next. Swan detested travel. He detested the way it took you away and deposited you back again. The same as before, but tired and having missed a bit of life. Hannah. Hannah. Rosting? This, of course, is lying. Ah! I was going to say Rosting, too. I know there's a part about travel, though, which made me feel like maybe I just... I don't know. Anyway, I got it wrong. This is this is a rather lovely passage. So kudos to you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I I think this is the key, maybe, to making a game like this more successful. Something about travel is in the book, but I changed like two things. So first of all, Philbin talks about travel, Mm. and uh, and and Swan likes it. So it's like I kind of pivoted those two things. Well, you tricked a little old me. And it, it would have worked for Swan. Swan, a character who could essentially like anything and it would make sense. Uh, up next, our last one. Uh, Hannah, I think, at a, a, a completely unwinnable disadvantage. But, yeah, you know, games are just one. fun. I'm mm-hmm. having a great time. I always do. <laughs> I'm going to be quick on this one. She always <laughs> says it very spitefully. Okay. Swan skittered through the wings, looking for Winslow in the heavens. We're friends, if anything, he chirped. Though maybe not friends. Friends don't bring one another's pipe dreams to life. Ethan. Ethan. Told you I was going to be quick. It's lying. (laughs) Yeah, lying. This, of course, is is a dang lie. Yes, okay. I'm going to give myself a point on that because I also said it. So we're now at 42. (laughs) Oh, well, there were all kinds of times when I would have said it as well. Obviously, all the times I meant to get it right. Of course, of course. (laughs) Now I feel like I un-understand how to make the game good, because this is like the same thing as the last one. It's just a tweaked version of of reality. I thought it would trick you. Well, it didn't. What are games but a tweaked version of reality? 